Hi, my name is Kim Metcherson, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. I am here today with my colleague, Roger Clark, who is a Board of Governors professor here at Rutgers University, and who has had, I think, what can fairly be called a pretty astonishing career. So it's really wonderful to have you here, Roger, and I'm looking forward to the conversation that, that we're going to have over the next 40 minutes or so. So the way I always like to start this podcast is by asking people their origin story of all the things that you could have done with your life. You decided to get not just a law degree, right? I mean, you have multiple <laughs> degrees, LLMs and all, the, all these other sorts of things. So why law? What was it that appealed to you about the idea of being a lawyer? And then what, what brought you to legal academia? Well, you know, I grew up in New Zealand and in New Zealand, law is an undergraduate degree. Uh, and as I was getting to the end of my high school career, it was pretty clear that my cousin and I was about the same age. We were the first in our family, both to graduate high school and then go on to university. I didn't know many university graduates apart from uh, teachers. So I took an aptitude test and the aptitude test said I should either be a minister of religion or a lawyer. Now, I knew several ministers of religion, and I knew that wasn't for me. It's just not my thing. I'm not a great believer, and, and that wasn't going to happen. So I thought, well, I, I, I better study law. I, I think hmm. the emphasis I should have drawn it was just a stupid test, and I should have ignored it totally. <laughs> but, but in any event, I, I went off to university to study law as an undergrad. But I, I, I hedged my bets because um, uh, you, you could take a, a double degree, a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Law, and I was actually the only one at my year who did that, although that changed a lot in New Zealand since. So I studied well, mostly history and political science uh, along with the, uh, the law. And, and, and along the way, I concluded that I, I found the law much more interesting and very exciting, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. And also found that I was fairly good at it. So uh, the way study went in New Zealand in that day, most senior law students, you know, after a year or two, went part-time and I got a job initially uh, with the uh, Minister of, Ministry of Justice working in the court system uh, and then I had a year with the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. A actually the, the Foreign Affairs but was really quite disappointing because I applied for this job uh, and I didn't get it uh, and I found afterwards that not only was I not successful but as only applicant and I didn't get the job. Oh, that's wow. a, bit, a bit of a blow to the ego. Yeah. Um, yeah. I reapplied for the job in the legal office of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, and, and I got it and, and I spent a year there, which was really a very formative and exciting year and I learned in Norman's Mountain. There were three of us who ran the whole of the New Zealand legal system, uh, well, the international part of it. Uh, uh, and that was very, really exciting and interesting uh, work. But towards the end of the, the year, I got a call from the dean uh, at the law school who said, uh, I want you to teach for me next year. And I said, well, all right, uh, um, what does it entail? And he said, well, how much are they paying you now? And I told him what it was. He said, well, we'll give you another $100 a year um, to come up and uh, work at the university. Uh, I, and I, I told my boss at Foreign Affairs about this. And he said, yeah, well, we very nearly didn't hire you because we called the dean uh, uh, and said, well, should we hire this guy? And, and the dean said, well, no, because I'm going to hire him. 
But of course, <laughs> nobody, nobody had told me that. So right. I, I figured I should try the academic world. And if I didn't like it, well, rethink. And yeah. I tried not to burn my boats at foreign affairs, although I did succeed in burning them totally because New Zealand was just getting involved in the Vietnam War at this point. And I was a very visible opponent of, of the war with a result that I, I've never done any consulting work for the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Huh. I did a bit of work in subsequent uh, years for the um, New Zealand Justice Department uh, and I've done you know, some work for small Pacific Island states. Uh, but I, I, you know, I burned the boats there and to the extent that I had uh, put the fire out some years ago, there were other issues like the independence of East Timor and so on. Mm -hmm. I, I got offside with the New Zealand establishment. So now, frankly, I was a gadfly. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, I, and I must rather have it that way. Yeah, I think it's just really important that academics uh, stick their necks out uh, and say things that are important. And, uh, Absolutely, I I feel like one of the things that is a hallmark of several folks who who work at our law school is that they're what I would call academic activists, right? They're they're people for whom certainly academia is important and scholarship is important, but that part of the power of being a law professor is the things that you can do outside um, of of the law school. And I would love to talk about some of those things because there's so many interesting things that you that you've done, and I think it's you think it's fair for me to describe you as an expert in human rights and international criminal law, or would you describe yourself otherwise? No, I, I think that's fair. Uh, although, you know, I, I, I've done stuff that's a little broader than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I did quite a lot of work on decolonization, mm -hmm. which I think it was a human rights issue. I mean, I mentioned East Timor. I spent a lot of time trying to get the United States and the French uh, out of their uh, colonies in the uh, Pacific. And I think, you know, that was really important uh, stuff to be doing and not totally spent. I mean, there's still some issues like the Chagos Islands uh, uh, and Western Sahara that haven't totally been um, resolved. But I think that was an important part. And again, I, I included uh, in, in the notion of uh, human rights. Although I must say uh, that at one stage, I, I got in a big fight with uh, Amnesty International uh, over uh, East Timor. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, well, self-built decolonization, uh, it, it's self-determination is not our issue. We're into human rights. We're into mm. people being killed and denied their civil and political rights and being tortured and so on. And, and you know, I responded, well, look, I, I think that's a very narrow view on life uh, and the fundamental problem uh, in a place like uh, Indonesia and occupied Timor or in what the French are doing in the Pacific uh, is denying their people their inalienable rights to govern their own affairs uh, and make their own mistakes uh, and, and, and so on. So, I mean, I think that's always been a very interesting question about uh, how you define the field that you're working on. Uh, and I, I, I should add that, um, well, I, I got interested in, in human rights, I, I think from a young kid actually, in, in high school, I, I read uh, um, Pride the Beloved Country uh, about mm. South Africa and subsequently got quite involved in New Zealand and anti-apartheid uh, uh, activities. But when I went to Columbia to do graduate work, I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on what was then a proposal to create a United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. You know? mm -hmm. And as it turned out, I was 20 years ahead of my time. I thought it was <laughs> going to happen in the 19, uh, late 60s or early 70s. It didn't happen until the 1990s. Uh, but, but I was excited about teaching human rights and, and the deal I negotiated when I came to Rutgers in 1972 
was that I teach criminal law and torts as, as long as I could teach human rights. And I think we were about the sixth or seventh law school in the country uh, to have a course on, on human rights. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and I did that for many years. And then I got a little diverted uh, because in the mid 1980s, I, I got elected to what's best described as a Mickey Mouse little UN committee called the Committee on Crime Prevention and Control, which was into, well, for the most part, standards in criminal justice. Uh, so I, I moved a little more from sort of broad human rights issues, more into the international criminal law as it became. And then from that, I, I diverted a bit again. I, the Samoan government asked me to participate in the negotiation to create the International Criminal Court from 1995 onwards. So by this stage, I was teaching a course that I called International Criminal Court and uh, International Criminal Law. And other people like Beth Stevens came along and, and picked up the um, human rights course and did, did great things uh, with it. Took it you know, beyond what I could into doing it to, uh, as a clinical course and, and, and so on. So uh, yeah, I, I, I covered a range of issues uh, mm -hmm. uh, through there. Uh, and uh, you know, we have our little pigeonholes, don't we? And I'm not sure that uh, uh, human rights is just a great pigeonhole to put the whole thing in. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so I, there are a few different questions that I want to ask you based on what you said. So one of the things that I say to my students often, um, you know, I teach South African constitutional law, I teach it as a health and human rights course. And so we sort of start by helping the students think through, you know, what is it to talk about human rights as opposed to talk about, you know, constitutional rights, which is what we so often talk about in the United States. And one of the very cynical things that I say is that the U.S. is not a regime that necessarily concerns itself with human rights. And by that, I mean the ways that I might talk about human rights in the South African constitution, which is completely human rights based, is very different from how we talk about rights in the United States. So is do you feel like that's a fair statement for me to make? Or do you think that I'm being I'm being unfair to the US in, in, in saying that we're not really a place that's about human rights? I know you're not unfair at all. And, and in, in particular, it comes out with the whole uh, collection of what the UN calls economic, social, and cultural rights, uh, which are really important in, in the South African constitution mm -hmm. and aren't in ours. And, and I've often felt, you know, I'm not a great student of American history, but, but if FDR headed off in that direction, it was important to him. Uh, it was important to him to get the United States into the International Labour Organization even though he couldn't get him into the uh, League of Nations and so on. And his, his four freedoms uh, were all about those kinds of issues. Uh, and when Eleanor Roosevelt was working on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that was very important to her to carry through and, and have stuff on economic, social and cultural rights uh, uh, in there. And then, and then somehow uh, the United States uh, uh, lost the picture uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, turn you know, much more inwardly. And, uh, um, and, you know, the Warren Court did really important stuff on civil and political rights and, and civil liberties. Uh, but, but we lost the notion of, about uh, broader social um, material uh, and you know, solidarity rights, if yeah. you like. And, yeah. and I think uh, events of the last uh, four years are a good example of that uh, problem. <laughs> Yeah. There's so many ways 
in which we don't care about everybody else. Absolutely. One of the things that's that's really interesting and also challenging in, in my South African cotton law course is as we're as we're working through the constitution from South Africa, which as you know has all of these positive rights. You have a right to water, you have a right to housing, you have a, you know, all these different things. And the students are often so resistant to those ideas, right? Yeah. Like the idea that the government could be obligated to make sure that you have you know, oh. adequate housing yeah. and all these different things. And, you know, as somebody who's been teaching, you know, human rights and, and international law for a very long time in the United States, have you seen any sort of shift in, in the students who you've, who you've been teaching over the years? Do you feel like, you know, that younger generations are starting to appreciate human rights regimes more, that they sort of see the contrast between the U.S. and some other countries, or, or are we all, are we doomed? I think what is quite disappointing is that many of the students that I get, not all, but many of the students I get in my courses have never thought about this stuff before. Mm. And I hope I get some of it across to them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, you must have the same experience. Yep, absolutely. Um, they just haven't been exposed to that kind of material in, in high school or college. Now, yeah. I grew up in a country where it was second nature. Uh, mm-hmm. and that, uh, you, you did these kinds of things. And, and in some ways, uh, there was more emphasis uh, on the social and cultural material. Now, I'm not meaning to suggest that New Zealand is perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. And terrible problems with race relations uh, which it's been working on. And in many ways, the whole South African issue was a catalyst uh, for getting that off the ground. Uh, when I was in college, um, New Zealand and South Africa were the two best rugby teams in the world. Mm. Uh, and New Zealand took a team to South Africa, took an all-white team that left behind us Maoris and Samoans. Uh, and most people thought that was okay, you know, you complied with local custom. Well, a lot of us felt that wasn't okay. You see, right. their team for a start, which yeah. is pretty stupid, and then what did it say about us? Uh, okay. And I think those those conversations uh, yeah, were much more about us in many ways than they were about South Africa. Part mm-hmm. was part of it. But, but to think that we would actually do that what was unimaginable. And it, it became a very, very big issue and so on. So, and, and when I came to the United States in the late uh, uh, 60s, uh, again, people hadn't thought about those kinds of issues. Surely we're thinking about race relations in the United right. States, but hadn't thought about the, the, the bigger picture of how that fit into, uh, well, events in South Africa, for example, or the Vietnam War and, and what that meant uh, in terms of racism and uh, aggression and all of those kinds of uh, things. Well, right. There, there, there were some people at Columbia who thought about that, but not a hell of a lot. Uh, yeah. So, to go back to about the students. My impression uh, is that in the 70s, when I first started teaching here, there was always a, a, a strong leavening of people who, who came to law school to change the world. Uh, they, their experience, they'd worked for non-governmental organisations and so on, and, and they thought this is the next stage, go to law and, and continue with it. And, and I think a lot of them ended up doing exactly that. And then I don't know whether we had a lot of them 20, 30 years there, but I'm finding them again. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've been in touch with, with quite a few current students or recently graduated ones in the last years who seem to have some of that excitement. Okay. Yeah. I want to get into, I want to get into some of the um, specific work that you've done because you've yeah. had an opportunity to just participate 
in some really wonderful and amazing things. So you you alluded a little earlier to the International Criminal Court. Um, yes. So as a starting point um, for folks who don't know anything about international law, don't know how any of this stuff works, what's yeah. what's the International Criminal Court? What's What was the purpose of it? What was it meant to achieve? Well, the, the idea of the International Criminal Court goes way back, but, but specifically, particularly, goes back to the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials uh, and, and the notion that, that we had that it was proper to apply law to evil of a very significant uh, kind. Uh, uh, and in the euphoria on that over the next three or four years, the United Nations General Assembly talked a lot uh, about starting a, a permanent international criminal court, which would try things like genocide, crimes against humanity, serious war crimes, and maybe some other crimes. Um, it was an idea that, for example, the United States pushed strongly for a few years, as it had pushed uh, for the Nuremberg and Tokyo trial. But again, that petered out in American thought in, in the early 50s, and, and the Soviet Union, who'd been enthusiastic uh, about it, lost interest uh, too. Uh, and, and the issue went way, way, way back into the, um, the back burner. Uh, in the late 1980s, the then Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, who later became the uh, uh, president of Trinidad and Tobago, suggested in the General Assembly that we ought to revive the idea and have a court. Uh, uh, and uh, sometimes in life, the time is right. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the idea uh, uh, started taking off over the next couple of years. Uh, and then the, the Security Council decided to uh, create courts to deal with uh, uh, events in former uh, Yugoslavia and in mm -hmm. Rwanda. Uh, I, and, um, you know, I'm a cynic in some ways, and, and I thought that I did that largely because they weren't prepared to do anything more. And this was a good way to save face and look as though you were doing something. Mm. But, but it was an idea that really caught on. And uh, thus, a, a lot of smaller and medium-sized countries said, well, this is great. But Nuremberg and Tokyo were done by the victors. Former Yugoslavia and Rwanda were done by the big guys uh, uh, and a lot of awful things, East Timor and South Africa, lots of things that we could have brought to this kind of uh, tribunal, but they're not, it's too ad hoc. And what we need is a, a, a permanent uh, uh, court. Uh, uh, so the idea is kicking around in the General Assembly for a couple of years. Uh, and in 1995, the General Assembly had a so-called ad hoc committee, which is what everybody can turn up to, uh, to talk about uh, well, doing something, creating a court. And it was at that stage that a former student uh, of mine, who was uh, for some years the Attorney General of Samoa, and then uh, their representative in New York, uh, said to me, I need some free work done. Uh, will you work on this uh, uh, for me? He said, I, I think it's going to happen. And I said, well, I don't think it is. It's been around for a long time. And it, it'll be fun. And I'll write a snotty little article saying what went wrong. Around. And he said, no, no, no. I, I think it's going to happen. So that was 1995. And I started attending meetings. Uh, uh, I, and it was clear after a while it was going to take off. Uh, and to cut a long story short, uh, we met in the uh, middle of uh, uh, 1998 in Rome to create the, the treaty setting up the court. Mm -hmm. uh, jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and complicated, uh, the, the crime of uh, uh, aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, and I made a lot of predictions about this. I'm mean, including the one, as I said before, this isn't going to happen. Uh, and I was wrong. We now had a treaty. And uh, 
somebody from the Christian Science Monitor interviewed me about three o'clock in the morning after we had this euphoric uh, session adopting the treaty. And he said, how long will it take to get enough states party to it? We needed 60 to bring it into force. And I said, well, 10 years, maybe not in my lifetime. So huh. I was wrong by about six years. Within yeah. four years, we had enough uh, parties to bring the thing into force and, and it was off and running. And look, I, I, I think it's a body that uh, has done reasonably well, but not as well as we would like. It, it's very different from other international courts in that it deals with individual criminals. Right. The International Court of Justice deals with disputes between states. This one deals with allegations uh, against uh, genocidaires and so on. Uh, uh, and it's quite a different ilk. Uh, and, you know, end up putting people in jail. Mm -hmm. Now, they mm -hmm. haven't been successful as I would have liked uh, in, in completing uh, a great number of prosecutions. There have been some acquittals. I don't have any problem with acquittals. You know, and the thing about criminal law is you've got to prove it. Yeah. Uh, and nothing like a failure of proof. <laughs> Although if you've done a trial for five or six years and uh, at the end of the day, the judge says you lose, it's not very satisfactory. Right. But um, uh, I, I, look, I think it's a really important piece of the architecture of international law, um, which uh, we needed uh, uh, and, and we have. It's got 120 odd states that have agreed to come party to it. Some major ones like the United States I haven't. Mm -hmm. uh, and the United States, uh, for a while during the Bush administration and again in the last administration, tried to put the boot in, tried to kill it, um, because they're not enthusiastic about the thought it would apply to them. Right. And there's wonderful ironies here, because uh, I, in his opening speech at Nuremberg, Justice Jackson went out of his way to say, look, we put a poison chalice to the lips of the Germans here. It's the same poison chalice we may have to put to our own lips uh, some other mm -hmm. time. So rules were applying to them. Uh, rules that apply to uh, uh, everybody and I think it was about that point a lot of people in Washington had second thoughts and said well about maybe we don't want to apply uh, uh, this right. we, we don't want to, uh, to be uh, brought before them and so on and you right. see that playing out uh, in the last couple of years over the efforts to prosecute um, war crimes in uh, Afghanistan mm -hmm. to most right. of them, what the Taliban and the Afghan government uh, does but uh, it's pretty clear that the United States engaged in some war crimes. Pretty clear the Australians did, and um, maybe Italians, New Zealanders, uh, Canadians, who, who knows? Uh, there are others, uh, and that's close to home. Uh, yeah. You, you can see some of the problems there. Absolutely. I want to also sort of talk about, you know, what are, what are the different options when awful things happen in the world, right? So one option is criminal court proceedings in the International Criminal Court. Um, one option might be, you know, a domestic prosecution. One option that I'm utterly fascinated by are the countries, South Africa being one, but other countries have done the same, that try these you know, truth and reconciliation commissions, right? We won't prosecute you in exchange for you coming in and telling us the awful things that you did and maybe giving families closure or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm always curious about, you know, it's easy to be very skeptical, I think, about those kinds of efforts, particularly because they don't lead to punishment and they don't lead um, to criminal prosecutions. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you sort of talk about how you think those things work in conjunction with each other, um, yeah. whether you think those kinds of commissions are good for some things and not for others, um, you know, just your general thoughts. Yeah, that's, that's a really hard uh, a set of questions. Uh, and, you know, my, my impression of, of South Africa uh, is, look, 
for some people, it's really important to tell your story. Uh, and that's a big problem with suing in the United States courts. Uh, you know, Beth Stevens, my, my colleague, was involved in a lot of these uh, cases under the Alien Tort Claims Act. At the end of the day, defendant doesn't have any money. And yeah. you can't execute on the judgment. Uh, you got a $10 million judgment. Uh, and that's great. Uh, yes. And but, but having your day in court uh, is uh, really important to a lot of people. And I know one of Beth's cases was a, uh, a plaintiff was a New Zealand woman whose uh, son was murdered by the Indonesians in, in East Timor, uh, named Helen Todd. And, and, and I think she was, my impression was she was really pleased to have her day in, in, in court. It, it was good. And, and I think that's true of a lot of the, uh, the South Africans. But, but you know, the other side of the coin uh, is um, South Africa never did fund a, an effort to do reparation uh, for the people who had suffered. And you, you don't get very far uh, with that. And look, the International Criminal Court's got the same problem. Victims have a prominent role uh, in the whole operation. But, but I always say to people in the negotiation, look, there's not a great pot of money in the sky uh, that's going to fall into the hands of, of, of the court. Because by the time somebody gets convicted, uh, if they stole the, the country blind and put their money uh, in a bank account in Switzerland or something, thieves or the government uh, has got down on their money, it's not available uh, to go to uh, victims. And, and, and so far, none of the guys uh, who've been convicted by the court have had money that you uh. can take and give to the victims. So in, in, in theory, you know, there's a lot of money uh, out there, but it doesn't, doesn't exist uh, to uh, recompense. And look, look, one can argue about whether money is important or not. Right. And, and I do think the notion of telling your story and uh, having someone listen to it, you know, um, an archbishop listening to your story, I and mean, I think that's pretty good in South Africa, but um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I never talked to any of the victims uh, about uh, how they felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely yeah. controversial. And I think, you know, one of the things that I find really refreshing when I've been to South Africa um, on, on the trip part of the course is the willingness of people to talk about race and to talk oh. about apartheid and to talk about, you know, their societal obligation oh. to move past it, to be better um, and to do better. And I just, I think that's incredibly Powerful. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And of course, that's something that's happened in New Zealand w without, you know, a, a cataclysm. Uh, people have got to the point where, where look, we've got to talk about this. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned before, uh, rugby football was funny, the catalyst for that. Uh, right. And, and getting those discussions going. But yeah, they still got a long way to go. Right. Uh, of course. Uh, so, so many countries do. Yeah. But um, I mean, the whole effects of colonialism and so on and the multi generational effects of, uh, all of those issues are ones that uh, all sorts of societies are trying to come to, to grips with. Come Absolutely. Canada, for example, with the First Nations issues and Australia is uh, well further behind in trying to do something about its Aboriginal population and so on. Really important to talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to think about what does it look like for a government to compensate today's people for yesterday's wrongs or right. to understand the ways in which yesterday's wrongs continue to right. impact right. people yeah. in a country. No, I think the multi-generational stuff is just so important uh, that, you know, it doesn't tell you exactly how you've got to go about dealing with it. Right, that's right. That's absolutely, that's absolutely difficult. absolutely the case that uh, you know, dealing with Native American issues, uh, you got to think back to 
well, Spanish in some cases, but certainly to Western European arrivals and so on. Yeah, you, you got to know the history to be responsive to it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I want to uh, I want to ask you a few more um, specific questions and then a, a couple of, of, of broad questions. So I certainly couldn't let this podcast end without talking about your representation of the Marshall Islands and and the work that you did there. So this was what in 20, 2014, 2015? Yeah, 16, really, mostly in 20, well, 2014 to 2016, I think is the best way to put about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's a part of a much bigger story, of course. And as you know, the United States tested 69 nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands and left a big mess behind. And that's always been a really important issue in Marshall Islands politics. In the mid-1970s, I used to go up to New York to the trusteeship council on behalf of a non-governmental group, the International League for Human Rights, uh, and try to persuade the Trusteeship Council to get the United States out of the Marshall Islands and to clean up their mess. Uh, And and I can't say it was an especially uh, enthusiastic uh, uh, audience that I had (laughs) at at that time. But while I was there, I met a young guy, Anton de Bruyne, who was in his 20s. And uh, they're on the same mission, actually, uh, and a- Anton ultimately became the foreign minister. He concluded, after talking to a lot of lawyers, that it was a good idea uh, to try to enforce Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty of 1968 has a promise in it from the nuclear powers that they will negotiate an end to the nuclear arms race and negotiate an end to nuclear arms. I mean, clear that's what the treaty says uh, and uh, uh, Anton had it in his head that it would be a good idea to try and, and enforce uh, uh, that now there are a couple of ways you could go about doing that we'd been involved in an earlier case which got what was called an advisory opinion from the, uh, the court that on that particular issue the International Court of Justice was quite strong but, but anyway the feeling was we should go and, and, and do this so he had, had put together a team of people from uh, around the world, from, from the Netherlands, uh, from the United States, uh, from uh, Geneva, from uh, the UK, from Italy. Uh, and uh, I was privileged to be part of that um, team. I wasn't a senior person on the team by any means, but uh, it, it was really important to me. It's an issue, frankly, that I'd worked on the whole of my professional career. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time in the 1960s, first as a student politician, and then as a junior member of the faculty in New Zealand, trying to persuade the New Zealand government to take the French to the court over the testing in the Pacific. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I followed these issues all along. Uh, so we had, and, and, and the issue was essentially, would it get declaratory uh, and injunctive relief to get the nuclear powers to negotiate? Now, the, the big problem with getting anything in the International Court of Justice uh, is jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so we effectively wrote to all of the nine nuclear powers and, and, and said, would you be kind enough to join us? Uh, the only one who actually responded was the, uh, the Chinese who said, no, we really want to join you. <laughs> so we are very polite about it. Um, yeah. But we, we ended up with jurisdictional theories uh, against the United Kingdom, India and Pakistan. 
and we proceeded with, with those three uh, uh, cases. The United States, we couldn't find a theory to get them in there, and uh, mm. the, the Russians and the Chinese, there wasn't any way to get them there. But, but we had what we thought were arguable uh, 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 theories to uh, go in. So uh, the way the court works, by and large, is the first argument you end up with is jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. pretty basic stuff. Uh, is there a jurisdictional uh, 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 theory? And uh, ultimately, to cut a long story short, we, we, we lost uh, in, in the court in a, in a split decision. The court was split eight to eight on the question of whether we had a dispute with these guys, a really mm. arcane argument, uh, you know, sort of related to the kind of things you find in American con law about justiciability or political question uh, and, and, and so on. And, and when the court is split uh, eight to eight, it means that the presiding judge gets a second vote to make it nine to eight. And the president was a French uh, judge uh, who wasn't terribly sympathetic to our argument. Uh, so uh, we got tossed out uh, uh, on that argument. I, I must confess that it's the argument that I thought uh, was the most difficult that we had to face. I thought we had a really good argument uh, that the nuclear powers had simply refused to, to comply with their obligation to negotiate. I mean, they won't sit down and do it. They won't agree on an agenda for a negotiation uh, and, and they won't agree on uh, you know, the details of where to go. Uh, Meanwhile, they say to everybody else, well, don't you dare proliferate because you promised not to get nukes. So we did promise to get rid of them, but we can't just get. Uh, it's, it's only since 1968, you know, it's may take another half century or so. Uh, so I, 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 look, look, it's a disappointing experience in, in, in some ways. Um, it's an interesting court. It's not like a normal court because uh, you, you stand in front of the judges and, and you read your argument. Uh, you can't deviate from your text. They don't ask any questions during the argument. They may ask a couple of questions at the end, which you reply to either in writing or at the next uh, session. So there's no interchange with them. I tried a bit of eye contact from time to time. and don't think that always went well. One guy was asleep. Um, it wasn't very well, to be honest. And uh, some of the others obviously weren't very sympathetic to the point that, that I was making. But it, it was a fascinating experience. I mean, arguing about the, the future of the world, frankly, uh, before the highest court uh, in, in the world is, is an exciting experience. But yeah, it's hard, it's hard to beat that. Close case. Uh, yeah. Split down the middle. Uh, could do worse. And, and that was the work for which you and, and the team got the, uh, the nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, yes, yes. We didn't get the prize, obviously. No, <laughs> I mean, but look, it was great. you got I, nominated. I the reaction was, you know, to, to kind of be, be, be amused. But you want to think about it. It was, it was a great honor, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty terrific. So as somebody who has been, I mean, one of the things that I think is 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 really interesting is, you know, when people say folks are folks are radical when they're younger and then as they get older, they they move into, no. you know, conservatism, which I I don't see fr from your career at all. So, no. you know, you were sort of talking about, you know, opposing the Vietnam War um in the 60s and and your whole career has really been about fighting these incredibly important causes, whether it's, you know, nuclear disarmament or holding people responsible um, for atrocities. And given how long you've been doing this work, what what's your sense of where we are now, right? I mean, are we in a in a better place than we were 
50 years ago? You know, is, is international law stronger? Is it enforced more? Do people treat it with more respect? Or do we still have a long way to go? That's a really hard one. And, and often people ask me how I manage to uh, still keep my enthusiasm, <laughs> which yeah. is difficult sometimes. I take nuclear issues. I, I worked on them since the early 60s. Frankly, when I first started to think about international law uh, and, and nuclear issues, there was hardly any environmental law. Mm. Um, nobody taught international environmental law, and nobody much taught domestic um, environmental law. Mm-hmm. Really, a breach of the early 70s and the uh, Stockholm uh, Conference on the Environment that, that, that generated so much interest in that. And, and I think the same is uh, so, so. What I'm saying is there's an enormous amount of uh, normative stuff being, being developed. We're not always that good about enforcing them. I mean, you just got to think about uh, climate change and uh, what, what's been happening in, in, in relation uh, to. Uh, the Paris agreements and so on. But, but I think if you dig a bit deeper and, and drive around, there, there are a hell of a lot more wind turbines than there used to be. Mm. You know, stuff coming from uh, renewable resources, right. much more so uh, than when I first became interested in these issues. And again, in the human rights uh, area and the international criminal law area, there's a lot more normative material out there. The, the, the tools are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that use of them has been disappointing. Right. On the other hand, you do see uh, areas where some of this stuff uh, is really put into force. I, I was talking with some of the students earlier uh, about money laundering, for example. You know, there's some uh, international agreements on money laundering and so on. But actually, the, the Financial Action Task Force, as it's called, is a you know, sort of quasi-governmental organization that really enforces some of that stuff because they lean on banks. Uh, and, and they say, if you don't knock this off and get rid of that client, uh, then you're not going to be able to move your money through the international banking system. Uh, and, and I think we've had some effects like that. Uh, and you can translate that into other areas of the law and, and, and so on. And, yeah. and I think going, going back to your question about the United States, the United States has been very slow to ratify human rights treaties, you mm-hmm. know, ratify the covenant on civil and political rights, but not the one on economic, social, and cultural. It's party to the, the racial convention, but not the one on the elimination of discrimination against women and, and, and so forth. Uh, but, but they have ratified all of the important uh, international criminal treaties, ones on hijacking airplanes, ones on blowing up airplanes, convention against torture, uh, financing of terrorism, all of that stuff. New Zealand's, uh, New Zealand's always done sort of both of them, but the United States is is first online uh, to ratify mm-hmm. uh, criminal law ones. Uh, and, and one can only say, look, it's part of a bigger picture. There's a lot of other stuff out there too. Uh, and you should come aboard and uh, and, and, and play uh, with it. And, and so on. it's really hard to do. And, uh, yeah. All, yeah, all good things in time, right? Well, it, it, it takes a long time. And uh, yeah. I've had a lifetime and uh, I've won a few. Hey, look, uh, uh, South Africa got rid of apartheid. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, East Timor got rid of the uh, in- Indonesians, and uh, I, well, we got an international criminal court. Uh, yeah, um, all the issues I've worked on uh, it turned out all right. Uh, I, I think you really have to look long haul. Uh, That's justice right. in general, we've got a long way to go. I think. Uh, right, and 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 I think what you said, you know, that you have to create the tools, yeah. and then you have to figure out how to make people use those tools and and it takes it 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 takes a long time to shift culture it take you know all of those things don't happen overnight at all 
mentioned the International League for Human Rights, and I, I did a lot of work for them in the 1970s and 80s, I mean, including on the decolonization stuff. But uh, uh, one of their uh, big things was if there was a procedure out there, we would try and make it work. Uh, mm. if you go complain somewhere, uh, you know, we figured out ways in which you could present a petition to, I mentioned the Trusteeship Council, but to the Decolonization Committee, the, some of the committees, the whole of the General Assembly uh, would hear you. So you put in a, a, a request to appear there uh, and, and you turn up and, and somebody objects to the jurisdiction, to your being there and so on, and you either answer it or you ignore it and hope that the chair gets the point and says we'll continue. Uh, and, and, and generally we got away with it. Uh, and when the um, Human Rights Treaty started um, coming into force in the late 1970s, they, they all had procedures either for complaints uh, or for government reports. And the governments would put in reports saying, look, this is the greatest uh, country in the world and these are the wonderful things uh, that we've done. Well, you write another report that says, well, hang on a minute. Uh, they're also doing this, 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 uh, and, and this. And that's become an important cottage industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's significant uh, uh, stuff to do. A lot, a lot of United States institutions do it in respect to the United States, you know. Yeah. Get on their case about torture, for example, at uh, uh, Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and uh, yep. so on. And, and, and those procedures are out there and they have some impact. Uh, and decent states ultimately... Uh, uh, respond to, to some of it, even the bad guys uh, from time to time. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I also think that kind of work, you know, reporting on things that are happening is a way to get that sort of groundswell yeah. of support for change, right? And, and we live in a world now where you can disseminate that information so widely and yeah. so quickly and frankly, so cheaply, which I think has been really critical as well. So I wanna, I wanna wind down by um, asking you the, the legacy question. So as you said, you've been teaching at Rutgers since 1972. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Rutgers Law has been, has been your home for a very long time, your professional home. Yeah. Um, for a very long time, you have taught thousands of students, you've done amazing work all over the world. So, you know, when you think back to these, you know, almost 50 years that you spent at Rutgers Law, what what's the legacy that you want to have left? How do you how do you want us to, to still be talking about about Roger Clark, even when you're not in the building every day anymore? Look, I'm primarily a teacher. And I like to think that I've improved people's critical skills. They got some information from me too about criminal law or torts or something. <laughs> but, but it's the critical skills that are much more important. And, and, and I like to think that I've got across a bit of an idea about human dignity, human decency, and that you've got to treat people reasonably well. And that uh, it's not just about us. And look, I, I, I've had some terrific graduates, you know, so many graduates have become judges and, and uh, diplomats, frankly. Some other people who have done very well in the State Department and the military and Homeland Security and, and, and so on. And I like to think I made a contribution to their thinking. And, and I think actually what has been wonderful about working for Rutgers is that nobody has ever got on my case and said, what on earth are you wasting your time doing that for? And, and I think Rutgers has been a wonderful home for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously been very good to me. 
Well, thank you so much, Roger. This was just a huge, huge pleasure to, to speak with you and, and to hear more about your career. And, you know, having having received some of the emails and, and social media comments about um, you winding down your teaching career, I, I think you can be, be confident that you have had an enormous impact on lots of people out in the world. And, and, and that's, that's a real gift. It's a real gift to them. And, and I think it's a real gift to you. So it has been an honor and a pleasure for all of these years. And, um, and uh, we know where you live, so you can only disappear so far um, from Rutgers. <laughs> Thank you, so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. It's been a wonderful career. I've, I've been blessed. Thank you so much, Roger. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.